verse 18. Jesus says, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So again, perfect alignment with the Father's will and absolute authority. And Jesus makes that clear. And I love that John points this out. More than any other Gospel writer, John points out that Jesus' crucifixion and His resurrection were 100% under His authority. He was in control of the whole thing. And watch it as we get closer to John 18, 19, 20. Watch the absolute authority that Jesus wields over the whole situation. In the garden, He's in control. In front of Pilate, He's in control. On the cross, He's in control. When He breathes His last breath and says, It is finished! He's in control. I have the authority to take it up, to lay it down, and to, and to take it up again. Now, as we come to this Resurrection Sunday, know and understand that. Remember that. That Jesus had complete and total control and authority over the whole situation. Hebrews 13 verse 20 says, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And I go, wait a minute. If Jesus had authority, complete, total control, right, over His crucifixion and His resurrection, why does the Hebrew writer say the God of peace brought Him up from the dead? I thought Jesus said, I have authority to... to, I'm going to raise myself, is what He's saying here in John 10. I have the authority to raise myself from the dead. So why does the Hebrew writer say God did it? Why, in fact, does Paul add that the Spirit did it. Romans chapter 8, verse 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Are you ready for this? It's a Father, Son, Spirit thing. What is? The resurrection. Because one does not work without the other. Father, Son, and Spirit work in concert together. And what a concert it's going to be. Talk about your rock concert. They roll the stone away. (laughs) Father, Son, and Holy Spirit functioning together, working together in perfect agreement, in absolute unity. That's why unity is so important in the church because it reflects Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because it proclaims the Trinity of God. So the Good Shepherd, who is now the Great Shepherd upon resurrection... And in verse 19, a division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. See, Jesus is always doing that. He's always forcing an opinion. He's always forcing a position. There is a division. This is a good division. There is a good division in the world. And that is the dividing of sheep and goats. It's the dividing of those who receive Jesus and those who do not. A division occurred again. Verse 20, many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to Him? And others were saying, that is other Jewish leaders, 
These are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Remember, he had just done that. Sometimes as we study through scriptures, we forget what just happened. Especially if you're just doing little pot shot studies here and there. That's why we're walking it through. This just happened moments before he healed the blind man. And they're sitting there going, okay, what he's saying makes perfect sense. Fits with Hebrew scripture. We know it from our own prophets. And he healed a blind guy. How can you say he's demon possessed? Look at him. Listen to him. Listen to his words and his testimony. Jesus forces a position. Now, a little pause here between verse 21 and 22. Some time has will go by from this day on up to verse 22. Because John says, at that time the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. Understand, right now, at this point in Jesus' life and ministry, He doesn't return to the Galilee. He will leave Jerusalem in a moment here, but when He leaves Jerusalem, He does not go back to the Galilee. He will not return to the Galilee until after His resurrection. As a matter of fact, after He leaves Jerusalem here in a moment, He will not return to Jerusalem for a few months. Right now, He stays in and around Jerusalem from Sukkot, which was the holiday that had just finished. The day after Sukkot, He proclaims, I'm the light of the world. He forgives the woman caught in adultery. He heals the blind man. He does all this marvelous teaching day after Sukkot. And now from Sukkot on, a little bit later into the year, He's in and around Jerusalem. He's staying there. And we know that because now it's the time of the Feast of Dedication. So it was Tishri, the end of Tishri, the Jewish month of Tishri, our October, September, October. It was that time frame when Sukkot happened. And now he stays there until the next holiday, Feast of Dedication, which begins on the 25th of Kislev, which would be December in our calendar. What holiday was it, Bible students, you know? It was Hanukkah. The Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah. Jesus stays in the area from Sukkot to Hanukkah. He celebrates Hanukkah. He's there. The Feast of Dedication. That that feast which you know is the lighting of the candles. Eight days celebrating the, the driving out of Antiochus Epiphanes around 168 uh, B.C. And so this had been celebrated annually for the last 150, 160 years there in Israel. They had driven out this uh, Seleucid Greek ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, bad guy, picture of the Antichrist himself, drove him out, cleansed out the temple, because you may recall Antiochus, he spattered pig's blood soup and sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple to defile the whole thing. Well, they went through all of the procedure to clean out, to, to restore the temple. And then they lit the, the lampstand, the menorah in the temple. Got it lit, everything's good. It's like, oh, we got a problem. We lit the lampstand. So what's the problem? No oil, man. And it took eight days to make the consecrated oil to put into the lampstand, but they're going to run out of oil before eight days. What's going to happen? And they prayed, and I believe that God performed a miracle. Because the lampstand never went out. And so to this day, the Feast of Dedication, the Festival of Lights, Hanukkah, is still celebrated by the Jewish people. 
And I always felt like it wasn't fair. My Jewish friends got eight days of Christmas. I got one. (laughs) Anyway, so Jesus is there. And that's what is happening here. It's the Feast of Dedication. So it's the 25th of Kislev. And it took place there in Jerusalem. Verse 23, it was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon, that large portico that surrounded the temple court. You would pass through the portico of Solomon to come into the women's court and then on into the court of Israel, and then on into the priest's court and the temple. So the portico surrounded it. Jesus is just walking along in there. And the Jews, verse 24, then gathered around Him and were saying to Him, How long will you keep us in suspense? (laughs) If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Now i got to tell you what the actual translation here is of what they said, because it's so fascinating to me. How long will you keep us in suspense? What they actually said in the Greek is, How long do you lift up our soul? How long do you lift up our soul? That's interesting. If we read it that way, we'd be like, What what are they saying? How long will you mess with our minds? You know, the soul, the mind, the suke in, in the Greek. How long are you going to toy with our, with our brains here? How long do you lift up our soul? Tell us what the truth is. Are you the Christ or not? Here's the problem. It's all in their heads. The leaders were stuck in the soul man. And we're not getting into the spirit. The Bible tells us very clearly that we are triune in nature ourselves. We all have a spirit, our essence of who we actually are. We have a soul. It's our, our reason, the seat of our intellect, our minds. And we have a body. Spirit, soul, body. The soul is right in the middle and the soul tends to be the battleground, gang, between flesh and spirit. God talks to you in the spirit. God is spirit. And He wants those who worship Him to worship in spirit and in truth. So He enters speaking through the spirit to reach the soul, to affect the body. But if in my life I'm living carnally, I'm allowing my body, my desires, my carnal wants and needs to command the attention of my soul, then I'm not listening to the spirit. I'm never getting there. That's where the Jewish leaders were. Their whole religion, their whole lifestyle at the time was a soul-level focus. So they couldn't meet Jesus where He was coming from. He was speaking words of spirit and life. And they're stuck in the soul and they're jumbled up in words and traditions and religion and it happens in Christianity just as often. People who are so bound up in religion and in the soul and in the how-tos that they never meet Jesus in the spirit. And Jesus would say, let's walk in the Spirit. Paul said that. If we say we live in the Spirit, let's walk in the Spirit. Let's meet Jesus where He is. He comes to draw us to our spirit man, our spirit woman. And I love this. I was thinking about this just this morning. I'm trying to, just thinking it through, this whole issue of the soul. And Les quoted a verse in staff meeting. I went, that's it. That's it. That was their problem. Listen to this. Isaiah 26, verse 3. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The mind, the soul that is stayed on the Lord, that trusts in the Lord. The Jewish leaders at the time wouldn't receive him in spirit. 
And so they couldn't receive His Word in their minds, in their soul either. They rejected Him in spirit. They couldn't get Him. How long will you keep us in suspense? Let me ask you. We've been studying through now ten chapters of John. How many times does Jesus have to say it? How many times has He made it clear exactly who He is over and over and now they're still saying, (laughs) they're just in suspense. Why are you in suspense? Because they're trying to work it out. As opposed to receiving Him. Looking to Him. As opposed to having their minds stayed on Him. Now, let Jesus explain here. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe Me. The works that I do in My Father's name, these testify of Me. But you do not believe because you are not of My sheep. What does that mean? You're not following Me. You're not hearing My voice. You're not willing to trust in Me and because you won't trust Me, you can't hear what I'm saying. Verse 27, My sheep hear My voice and I know them and they follow Me. And this is absolutely key to receiving Jesus. If someone doesn't want to hear His voice, they won't. Seems kind of obvious, doesn't it? But if someone wants to keep Jesus at bay, keep Jesus at arm's length, if someone wants to try and figure out this stuff in the soul and will not receive Him in the Spirit, they're not going to hear His voice. You only receive Him if you want to. Cheryl and I finally saw it last night. God is not dead. How many of you have seen the movie? Okay, those of you whose hands are not up, go buy it. Don't even rent it. Buy it. You need to own this one. It's awesome. It's phenomenal. Best Christian movie that I've seen, in my opinion. I was moved to tears at points. The, 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 what was said in it, the acting was outstanding. The storyline was great. It wasn't campy. It was really, really good. God is not dead. And it was interesting. I didn't expect this. I knew what the main storyline was, but there were numerous other storylines that all kind of were coming together of different people and how the, where they were in their lives with regards to the Lord. With regards to faith in God. You had the one student, this young man, who absolutely believed and didn't want to compromise his faith. Then you had all these others. Some coming to faith. Some in rejection of God. You know, the atheist professor who just hates God. I don't want to ruin it, so I won't say anything about that. Although that's kind of ironic right there. I mean, you figure this out. How can you hate God and not believe in Him? <laughs> Anyway, great movie. But it's so pointed out, and I was watching it last night going, that's it, that is exactly it. Jesus divides. Jesus came into this world for judgment, that we would make judgments. We have to make a decision about who He is. And the only way to make that decision rightly is to open spirit to Him. To say, I want to know you. I desire to receive you. And when we say that, we will begin to hear His voice. Well, Rick, I've been doing this a long time. I haven't heard his voice. I'm not talking necessarily audibly, although I'm not discounting that either. I'm saying you begin to know that you know that you know Jesus is leading. It can be as simple as, as Doug's statement. This just this is a safe place. This is a comfortable place. This is a comfort zone. Why is it a comfort zone? Because Jesus is here. And we recognize that. 
You know what that means, sheep? It means you're hearing His voice. It means the shepherd says something. We don't even necessarily know what he said, but we hear the sound of his voice, and it is a comfort zone. And I want to be in that fold. And so you have made a judgment about who he is. And you hear him. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He says in verse 28, And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And listen to this, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, who? The sheep. He's greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now listen, remember old Jacob's prophecy? Genesis 49.24 From the hands of the Mighty One of Jacob, from there is the Shepherd, the Stone of Israel. Those are big hands, gang. The hands of God. Maybe I'm a little slow on the uptake, but I had never put this together. Let me see if I can put it together for you. Jesus is describing His sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and that is the context of which He says, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now see, I've read that verse, I've I've used it many times. I give them eternal life, they'll never perish, no one will snatch them out of my hand, my Father is greater than all, no one will snatch them out of my Father's hands either. And what I've always pictured in my twisted little mind is this great big hand and tiny little Rick running around his hand. And and Satan tries to get me and God goes, Nope, I got him. And I'm in there going, Lord! (laughs) Picture a lamb. Picture a lamb firm and secure in the grasp of the good shepherd. You're in good hands. And no one can pull you out of the Father's hands because His hands and the Son's hands, same hands, have got you, precious lamb. That's the picture he's painting here. And it is just beautiful. And what I love is that in Deuteronomy 33 verse 27, we're told the eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. No one can snatch me out of the Father's hands or the Son's hands. And His eternal everlasting arms are underneath. Beneath the hands that hold you are the arms that bear you. And it is the ultimate picture of the Good Shepherd. Verse 31. (laughs) So the Jews picked up stones again to stone Him. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning Me? The Jews answered Him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you being a man, make yourself out to be who? God. And there they go. His enemies proclaimed it. His enemies recognized it. They knew it. They clarify the issue for us. If you're wondering, His very enemies said He claims to be God. That's why they killed him. That's why they're so incensed. Not because he's doing good stuff and teaching interesting things, but because he claims oneness with the Father. I and the Father are one. There's only way, one way that Jesus and the Father can be one. One way. If Jesus is the Father. 
And the Father is Jesus. And so because He claims divinity, because He claims to be God, they want to stone Him. It's absolute blasphemy. And it completely rocked their world. (laughs) Prepare yourselves to be rocked a bit. Listen to Jesus' answer, verse 34. Has it not been written in your law, I said, you are God's? Quote, unquote. If He called them gods to whom the Word of God came, and the Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of Him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world that you are blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God? <laughs> if I do the works of my Father, do not, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father and Jesus is in a battle for their souls. You're not going to receive me in spirit right now, he's saying, so let's go to the soul. Use your head. Look at what I'm doing. Does what I'm doing look like a work of God? If the answer is yes, ask yourself, who's doing the work? I just I love Jesus. He is so in control of all this. Now, now you might say, okay, this freaks me out, and it should. Jesus just quoted Torah, actually he quoted the Psalms, but it's in Torah as well, where God called them gods. And he throws this out to them. Why? Because that's where their heads are. Okay, remember, it's in the soul level of thinking, and they're 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 thinking this way, and so Jesus says, Okay, I'll meet you there. The Torah calls men gods. So does a psalm. And they can't refute that argument because it's right there in their own book. They know exactly what he's talking about. Maybe you don't. He called them gods. What's he talking about? Two times, again, in Torah, in Exodus, and once in the Psalms, God called certain men gods. Let me show you. When a slave wanted to become an indentured servant for life, a slave who had been working for his master and it came time for his master to set him free. But he had a wife and kids, and now the wife and kids, by law, belong to the master. So the slave says, you know what? I love my master. I love my wife and kids. I want to stay here. I want you by my own choice, remain in your house and be your servant for life. Well, what they did, Exodus 21 verse 6, His master shall bring him unto the judges, and he shall also bring him to the door or unto the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. I'm assuming they pull the awl out, otherwise all they could do really is clean the doorpost. <laughs> to be stuck there, you know. He said, the master shall bring him unto the judges. Exodus 22, verse 9. For every breach of trust, whether it is for ox, for donkey, for sheep, for clothing, or for any lost thing about which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before the judges. He whom the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. Three times actually there, in two verses in Exodus, the word judges is Elohim. Elohim. The plural form of the word God. 
Elohim, which is the word used in uh, Genesis 1 throughout to describe God who created the heavens and the earth. Elohim did it. There, there are three, you may know this, El, Elah, and Elohim. El is the singular form of God, a God. Elah is one, or, is one or more gods. Elohim is three or more gods. And God is referred to in scriptures throughout as Elohim. So are the judges there in Exodus 21 and in Exodus 22. Why? Why does God call these judges, we translated judges because if we translated it gods, there are a lot of people reading their Bibles who would just freak out. But they're judges. Why does He call them Elohim? What's He mean? Listen, they bore divine authority as judges. So in essence, you could say it wasn't personal authority. He didn't call them by the name of God, the Hashem, the Tetragrammaton, the YHWH. He never called men that. That's God's name. But he called them Elohim in this situation because it was positional authority. Does that make sense? They were in the position of choosing, of deciding someone's fate, even in matters of life and death, in, in the case of murder. Well, the judges of Israel would stand in the position of the Lord to decide or to determine the case. So the judges were like Elohim, little e. God's little g. Because of where they stood. Again, it wasn't the name of God they wore. It was the authority. And so the judges of Israel had that God-ordained authority to make those decisions. And in making decisions of judgment for God's people, the standard must be Elohim. The standard must be God. I just point that out for this reason. When the standard in our legal system ceases to be the Lord, we're in trouble. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying, we're in trouble. (laughs) And this, this idea of calling them Elohim is not as Brigham Young taught his fellow Mormons. Oh yeah, we're gods. Men can, can rise up to be gods and ultimately rule our own planets. What about the women? Well, they can make babies for the men throughout all eternity. Just saying, I don't know why any woman would want to be a Mormon. Pregnant forever? I mean, just child after child. Not they go to rule their planet, but you're still there birthing babies for your man who's got his planet. Where does that leave you? Anyway, I digress. What is Jesus, what is he really meaning here when he calls them gods? What's he doing? Why does he raise this here? Go to the direct quote. Keep your finger there and go to Psalm 82. Psalm 82. Jesus is masterfully arguing his case with them and what he's talking about in saying... Has it not been written in your law, I said, you are gods? Jesus is pointing out to them the problem where they're lacking, and that is sound judgment. They are not judging right. And so he quotes Psalm 82. And if one or more of these Pharisees were thinking, they would have gone home, rolled out the scroll, and read this. Psalm 82, verse 1. God takes His stand in His own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers, the Elohim. He judges in the midst of the gods. 
But the word Elohim, again here, is used of the rulers, the leaders, the judges of the congregation of Israel. And so the psalmist Asaph here is saying, God takes a stand among the gods with little g, among His judges who are supposed to represent Him. How long will you judge unjustly? And show partiality to the wicked. Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. Why should they do that? Because that's what Elohim would do. Capital E. That's what God does. And if you're going to work as little e for the capital E, then you need to do it my way. And this is my way. In verse 5 he says, They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, verse 6, you are gods. That's Jesus' quote right there. I said you are gods, Elohim. And all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die as men or like men, and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. The psalm of Asaph is an indictment of poor judgment among the leadership of Israel. And that's why Jesus quotes this. He is doing the same thing. He is indicting the judges of Israel. He is indicting the Pharisees, Back in John 10, he, he directs them to Psalm 82. And if they have, if their minds are even open a smidge, if they're willing to walk through the door and follow the Good Shepherd even barely, they will turn to Psalm 82 and recognize Jesus is calling out bad judgment. Are you with me? Go back to John 10. They were sitting in wrongful judgment of Him. They were not judging correctly. They were being pathetic little G-gods. And because of that, Jesus says, here's the deal. You guys are missing the whole boat. Jesus claimed to be God. Yes, in fact, He did. Capital G. Capital E. Jesus claimed to be God. But their indictment is incorrect. They rejected His claim as blasphemy. Why? Because they ignored the evidence. Verse 37. Jesus says, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. If you look back at Psalm 82, don't do it right now, but maybe tonight when you get home and read through the description of how they should judge is exactly what Jesus was doing. Raising up the poor, helping the needy, loving those who are destitute. He was acting in the function of God. And they were not. And that's his point. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. I don't know how, but I would love to have seen that one. He just slips out. They're misjudging Jesus. Anyone ever been misjudged as a follower of Jesus? Indiana passed this week the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Many of you are aware of this. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act. It's an act that they passed, went through the state legislature. Governor Mike Pence of Indiana signed it. 
And it's an act simply designed to restore and reflect religious liberty in our country. Specifically, that the government cannot come in and unduly burden someone who is simply acting in good faith with their religion. It's kind of an extra support for the Christian community, for really the, anyone who has faith in anything, I guess. So it's, it doesn't call out just Christians or, or just Jews. It's for anybody, religious liberty. And the moment Governor Pence signed it, there has been a firestorm in the media. Some of you have been watching this. It has been blasted for discrimination against gays and lesbians. Even though gays and lesbians are not even mentioned in the bill. Has absolutely nothing to do with them, but they came out saying, yeah, well, this, this is because, you know, if a baker doesn't want to bake a cake for a, a, a homosexual marriage, well then, they'll, they'll use this law and be protected. Yeah. <laughs> okay, right on. Why not? Why shouldn't there be some protection for someone who's living by their faith? But it doesn't say anything in the law. Anyone read the resolution? I did. Did you read it? I read it word for word all the way through and it is simply protections for people of faith that the government not come rushing in. It's literally, it's the church side, I guess, of separation of church and state. It's the original idea of separation in church and state, which is that the government will be separate from the church. That the government won't impose itself on the church, not the other way around as it's been so twisted. So they passed the law. Everybody from Charles Barkley to Miley Cyrus are going nuts about it. Well, if Miley's upset, there's the gold standard right there. Washington State Governor Jay Inslee and openly homosexual Seattle Mayor Ed Murray, just telling you the truth here, not anything people don't know, placed governmental travel bans on Indiana. Yeah, I know. And just today, Bellingham Mayor Kelly Linville announced her own personal travel ban to Indiana. I wasn't aware she made so many frequent trips to Indianapolis. <laughs> but all these protests and all this stuff rising up. And it's nice to know that, you know, no one's going to be discriminating. Get that. The reaction to this resolution is discrimination. It's discriminating by view of your own judgment from your position. I am discriminating how I believe this law is going to play out. It's discrimination by definition. Wow. And so here we are in this place, in this country, and you think Jesus was misjudged. He says, hey, if they hate you, know this, they hated me first. That's the way it is. But Paul said the following. He said, To me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you. I love that. 1 Corinthians 4.3 It's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. What is Paul saying? He's saying, listen, if you are misjudged, please understand, followers of the Good Shepherd, He is your judge. No man is your judge. And you're not even your own judge. God is your judge. He's the one who will make all this right. He is the one who righteously judges 
Paul says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come from God. Fear not, little flock. Jesus said, it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let Him be your judge, and don't worry about the rest. So, verse 40, finishing up, He went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and He was staying there. Where was that? It's Bethany beyond Jordan. John 1.28 tells us that's where John was baptizing. Bethany beyond Jordan. It's the word Bethabara in the Hebrew. Bethabara means house of the passage. If you were in that study back in John chapter 1, remember that's where the Israelites crossed the Jordan River, at Beth Abara. That's where John the Baptist was baptizing, at the crossing place of the original Israelites 1,500 years before. That's the place where Jesus now was hanging out and residing at this time, Beth Abara. It's a beautiful, arid, palm-treed desert area where the, the Jordan comes flowing by. It's about 25 miles or so east of Jerusalem. And Jesus will not return now to Jerusalem through the months of Tevet, Shvat, and Adar. He will return in Nisan for the final Passover. What is Jesus doing out at Beth Abara during all this time? Hiding out? No. It's not a retreat. It's a refuge. It's not a place of hiding out. It's really wholly outfitting. (laughs) He's there in preparation. He's getting ready. And over the final three months of His ministry, He is preparing Himself for what's about to happen. And He knows what it is. He's known all along. The final examination of that last week of His life in Jerusalem as He, the Passover Lamb, the shepherd now becomes the Lamb and will be examined and scrutinized through that final week and comes out perfect, spotless, and then is sacrificed. But even out there, the sheep kept coming out to the shepherd, verse 41, many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. And we believe in you here tonight, Lord. We believe in you, Jesus. And we recognize, Lord, that that there is peace, there is rest. When our soul is stayed on you, when our minds are stayed on you, I pray, Lord, that You would stay our minds on You. That we would reside in that place of the Spirit. Even tonight, as we head to our homes, as we head to our rest, our minds would stay with You. Focus on You. Think about You. And listen for the glorious and gentle voice of our Good Shepherd, Jesus. Oh, we love You, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.